churches and really individual Christians seem to have a difficult time when it comes to finding a balance in terms of how we are to relate to the world. How are Christians or how are churches supposed to relate to the world? It's not an easy question. And uh, on either extreme, some Christians, and in fact entire churches, tend to, and sometimes the same church at different times and different places, tend to be under-adapted to their surrounding culture. And then on the other extreme are those that are over-adapted to their surrounding culture. Under-adapted would be withdrawal from the world, right? Let's cloister ourselves off from the world. The world is to be viewed with suspicion and dread and fear. And if the music or art or movie or literature is not made by Christians and specifically marketed to Christians, you are to avoid it at all cost, right? Under-adapted to culture. Themes of holiness and being set apart are key themes in this model. On the other extreme would be those that are over-adapted to culture. Uh, the idea here is that there's so much, you know, uh, common grace, but, but the problem is you, you, you look at somebody who's over-adapted to culture and you scratch your head, you can't really tell that much difference between someone who is a believer and someone who's not. So there's nothing really to convert to because there's really no difference There's no real change of lifestyle. Here, themes of Christian liberty and common grace are emphasized. Now, we know what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to be in the world, but not of it. But y'all, that's tough. (laughs) Because if we're under-adapted, then we're definitely not of the world, but like we're not even really in it, you know? We're just completely withdrawn, and it's really difficult to love your neighbor well or to reach anyone or to connect with anybody. We've all known people who, instead of being holy, they came across as holier than thou, right? But on the other hand, if we're over-adapted, we're very much uh, 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 in the world, but there's a point in which we're probably of the world, too. We participate, and so there's no real way to offer a radically new way to live, a gospel kind of newness and alternative because it just looks just like the world. So when you get down to it, being in the world but not of the world is difficult. In fact, uh, I hadn't planned this Sunday, this day, but did you see in your bulletin? Did you see what's being advertised Wednesday for parents? There's a workshop called Tech Wise Parenting this Wednesday at 6 p.m. And um, my wife Jackie has been part of a little parenting Bible study that's it's going great. But, but this Wednesday is a special for anybody, anybody, anybody can come. Invite your friends, invite the whole community. Uh, there's an expert in the field. She has an advanced degree in mental health uh, in terms of technology. And so if you're a parent and you're concerned, how do we do technology well? You're probably asking that question because you know that you want to be in the world, right? You don't want to be like, no, you could have no connection with the outside world except for this scroll, here, write your friends. I got you a tablet, stone. You know, you don't want me, you don't want me, right? But on the other hand, right, every kid looks at you and goes, I'm the only one, right, who doesn't have this or doesn't have that. It's difficult. So how do you be wise? How can you be in the world but not of the world? Well, that workshop is a, is a and it's not going to be the final part of that conversation. That's an ongoing conversation. But we thought maybe this would be a way to help equip Christian parents who know that it's so easy to be under-adapted. Even as a Christian, how do you relate to the world? You don't want to participate in worldliness. You want to be godly, but you also got to be in the world. Fish swim in the ocean, which is full of salt, but when you eat them, they don't taste salty. I thought I'd try it. I didn't know. 
You never know. How do you do it? Is there a way forward? Is there hope? Into this question steps 1 John. And in our text today, 1 John chapter 2, I invite you to turn. We've been in a series in 1 John, and we come now. He answers, he addresses this very question, and here's how he breaks it down in the text, and it's going to form the basis for the flow of this sermon, this outline. So if you're a person who likes an outline, or you're just a person who likes to know, hey, before I get on the plane, I want to know the destination, I can tell you right now, here's what we're going to do, and here's how we're going to get there. John says the key is twofold. First, knowing who you are. Then, how you are to live. So first, who you are in Christ, and then, how you are to relate to the world. And so, quite naturally, the sermon will follow those two places. Who you are, how you are to live. You might think of it this way. Your status as a believer, your strategy as how to relate to the world. Are you there? First John chapter 2. By way of background, and because some of you maybe haven't been part of this series, these have been some tough verses lately. And John is a pastor, he knows that, and so um, we've been in a series called That You May Know, a series about assurance, all from 1 John, and John, I read a commentator who said this, and I thought, yes, that is exactly right. He says, John, remember, was a pastor, so he knows what all pastors know. When you preach a difficult truth, it never fails. It is completely taken in by the exact opposite people who need to receive it. It never fails. So here John is talking about, don't just assume you're saved just because you're in a church pew, just because you're a member of a church. Don't assume. John wouldn't want, the last thing John would want would be for somebody to assume they're saved when they're not in fact born again. So he talks about that. He gives you these tests, these, these indicators. And, every, and I, I'm sure it happened in John's day. I know it happens. When, when you preach like that, it never fails. The most tender, tender-hearted Christian who is responsive to the slightest nudge of the Holy Spirit, when they hear that, they go, is it I? It's, it's probably me. Just because I've been a member of a church, just because I've been faithfully following Jesus for 52 years now, it could all be a sham. <laughs> and they're filled with guilt, and they're racked with guilt. Meanwhile, the person, the stubborn, hard-hearted person who needs to hear it's going, I hope these people are listening. <laughs> And they don't get it. Isn't that how it always seems to be? So John knows, on the one hand, he has to remind uh, people who they are, I mean, tell them the truth. There are some indicators. But he would never want to shake the faith of believers. So now he turns his attention to believers, and he, and he writes in beautiful poetry. I want you to, I'm just going to read 12, 13, and 14 together. He says, oh, I want you to have no doubt. I don't want you to be discouraged. I know we've talked about some tough stuff, so remember who you are, and it would be exactly what I'd want to tell you. And you'll see in 1 John what you always see. The Bible doesn't have to be made relevant. The Bible just reveals its relevance to 20. 22. It's, you're you're going to see complete relevance to where we are today. He writes, verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. And now he cycles through those same three again. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Right away what strikes me is two things. One is dripping with emotion. Right, you hear this pastor's heart. I want you to know that you know that you know. I want you to know who you are. I want you to know you're forgiven. The other thing that strikes me is the repetition. Did you see that? 
Six times he says, I'm writing to you. And he does two, twice to little children, twice to the fathers, and twice to young men. That's repetition. Now, it, perhaps you've heard me say this before. Remember, the Bible had no way of emphasizing something that was of special importance, right? This was written in Greek, and it's not like he could underline it or put it in all caps. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's not a single emoji. So you had, without memes, you had no way of emphasizing this is really important. So what is the only, what's a Bible writer's only recourse? If you wanted to get somebody's attention, what is the way you do that? Repetition assures people that what you're saying is important. Repetition assures people that what you're saying is important. Repetition is what... But this level of repetition, we haven't seen this. I mean, we rarely see this in the New Testament. And so imagine my surprise as I'm reading along in a distinguished New Testament commentary, Robert Yarborough. He's a distinguished New Testament scholar. Very formal language. So imagine my surprise when I read this delightful line. And I quote, First John here in these verses employs an altered angle of address that clamors for the full engagement of the listener's interpretive faculties. It is the literary equivalent of hitting a mule between the eyes with a two-by-four. <laughs> and I'm supposed to be studying ostensibly, but for the rest of my time, I'm imagining distinguished New Testament scholar Robert Yarborough mule bashing a good day's work of exegesis. Uh, now I've distracted the whole sermon. Uh, but the point is, you talk about a wake-up call. This is smacking a mule between the eyes with a two-by-four is what this is meant to do. This, John is saying with the greatest emphasis there is, this is who you are. Now, children, fathers, young men, almost all commentaries agree he's not here talking about actual age groups. And, of course, he's using old-fashioned language that in his culture, in a patriarchal society, would have made total sense. Fathers means those that are mature, it lumps in. If he had used these exact words, if he were writing it to our culture, specifically if he were alive, these words sound uh, patriarchal. Of course, when he says little children, he either means all believers, but certainly uh, when he says fathers, men, women, boys, girls, certainly includes everybody. But I think here, I think, he is talking about stages of development in our Christian walk. Just like there are stages of physical aging and maturity in our spiritual walk. Uh, John Stott makes this point. There are new believers. There are those mature believers who've been faithfully walking with Jesus a long time. And then there's those that are in the middle stages. So I thought it'd be helpful to go back and let's look at each of the three stages. And we'll put the couplet together on one slide. Does that make sense? Let me show you. He talks about little children in verses 12 and 13c. I thought it'd be better. Let's just deal with the little children first together. Then we'll deal with the fathers, then the young men. Here we go. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I write to you children because you know the father. Again, I think he's addressing brand new Christians. I could be wrong. It's worth noting. Uh, Some commentators think he's actually addressing only two groups. He says little children and children is all believers. And then he does the old and the young, the fathers and the young. Um, and they, they make a good case for that because earlier when he talks to all believers, he says little children. Uh, so I may be wrong about that. It, it is not a substantive point though because either way, what's true of these new believers should be true of all believers. But I happen to think that he's talking about stage of development. Here's why. Brand new Christians don't know much. They may not know much, I should say. 
They may not have a fully formed doctrine of the atonement. They may not know the ordo salutis and all its ins and outs. They may not be able to know all these things, but they know two things. They know the joy of knowing their sins are forgiven, and they know they've got God as their heavenly father. Now, there's some new Christians right here in this room. You remember? Remember what it was like when you felt like your sins were forgiven. You were convicted by the Holy Spirit and God, from first to last, God himself came and rescued you. And you realized you never would have turned to God. You never would have chosen him. You never would have repented. But out of his great love for you in Jesus Christ, he forgave your sins and that filled you with such joy and you realized you'd been adopted into the family of God. There are those of you that have been walking with the Lord for a long time. Do you still remember that? Do you still get excited when you hear, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so? And not just forgiven, but notice this. This is important if we're going to have assurance of salvation. You're forgiven for his name's sake. I love that. Another translation says, on account of his name. On account of his name. In other words, on whose account do you draw forgiveness? What does it mean when you draw on an account? It's old language. Usually when we think of banking, we draw an account. It usually doesn't come up unless we're overdrawn on an account, uh, right? But to be drawn on an account, those of you who laugh, the rest of you are like, what? Never. <laughs> but to be overdrawn, right? Because you're drawn on an account. What's the Bible saying here? On whose account are you drawing your basis of forgiveness? On whose account? Because let me tell you, if you're basing your forgiveness by drawing off the account with your name on it, you're going to be overdrawn pretty quick. But we're drawing our forgiveness off the account with the name Jesus Christ the righteous. And it can never be overdrawn. A limitless supply of his grace. Why is this so important? You, the reason you are discouraged. Some of you who are Christians, you are discouraged and you're down. You've not yet internalized the reality of this truth. You're, you're shaky in your faith, yet you doubt your salvation because you think it says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven based on how much you feel forgiven. It's not what it says. Others of you are discouraged and you're filled with anxiety because you hear him say, um, um, you are forgiven on account of the quality of your experience you had years ago when you prayed a certain prayer, whether you prayed it properly or whether you really, really meant it. No. Some of you are concerned and you're discouraged because you think it's based on whether or not you were truly sorry. Did I really repent enough? Which, by the way, you didn't. It's one of the sins for which we need repenting. Or we're bad at repenting. See? But if you base your forgiveness on whether or not you really repented or based whether you really, were, uh, you really feel forgiven or based on some experience you had, you'll never experience the true assurance of salvation. And John says the fact of the matter is, little children, you're forgiven for his name's sake. Your security is as good as the name of Jesus. That's pretty good. See? Now you trace this idea throughout scripture and you see that his name is associated with his power to bestow benefits of salvation. Go back to Matthew chapter one, verse 21, when the angel appears to Joseph to say, you don't have to divorce Mary. Here, let me let you in on the plan. You're, Mary's gonna have this baby. It's gonna be you know, from the Holy Spirit and, and she will bear a son and you shall call his name. There it is. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Fast forward to Pentecost in Acts chapter four, verse 12, Peter's preaching and he says, there is salvation and no one else for there is no other name 
given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. We're in the name of Jesus. It doesn't just mean we breathe his name as some magical formula. No, no, no. It means appropriating and living into the benefits that come from that name. Appropriating and living into the benefits that come through that name. Simple example. I'm sure you've had this experience. Haven't you had this experience? You're going to a ball game or a concert or a performance and it's a big deal, and you're nervous, and you don't know anybody, but you've been told you got like these VIP access seats, and you, you're walking up there, and you're a little nervous, but what did they tell you? What did they tell you? When you get there, he said, the guy who invited you said, you just give them my name. They'll get you right in. And you're going, okay, you know, I, I could pull names out of the phone book, you know, but it's more than just you pulled a name out of the phone book. No, 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 no. There are benefits associated with this name. You're coming in my name. And they don't know who you are, but as soon as you say you've come in this person's name, oh, come right in. Yeah, we've got your spot. You're all set. Why? Because you're coming in his name. That's what it means. And that name will never lose its power. But what if I, what if I sin in the future? I mean, I know he, he's, you see this, your sins are forgiven. This is handled. But, but what, about, what about sins I haven't committed yet, sins in the future? In fact, I've even heard people, 1 John 1, 8 says, uh, if we say we don't have any sin, the truth isn't in us, we're liars. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've even heard people uh, use this verse legalistically. And it makes me scared to think about, but here's how they're using this verse. They say, if you confess your sins. So if you have unconfessed sins, that's it. You can't be forgiven. Only if you confess your sins. To which you want to be like, you got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. So when Christ called out from the cross, it is finished. That means paid in some, paid in part. Paid a little bit? Paid if you add your confession? What else needs to be added to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Paid in full means paid in full. One of the sins for which I've already been forgiven is my lack of ability to confess sins that I haven't confessed yet. If I don't make it to the end of tonight, if I have a heart attack and die because the Bengals win, (laughs) whatever, if I don't make it, I promise you, Tonight, when I say my prayers at night, there's some things that I need to confess. And there's some things I wish I hadn't said and some things in my heart I know I shouldn't have done. And a lot of what I had to confess on Sunday is usually stuff I said in the sermon. (laughs) I want that one back, Lord. (laughs) Right? Hear me clearly. If I die before I get to make those confessions tonight at bed, don't you worry about me. You don't have to call a priest to come give me some last rites. Why? Because God already knows and Jesus already paid. He paid in full. Past, present, future. So then why, 1 John 1, 9, do I confess my sins? Because I love him and I don't want anything to disrupt the fellowship that a child feels with his father, which is the other thing new believers know. His father, they know God as father. They've moved from a head knowledge about God. After all, head knowledge What does James say? Even the demons in hell have a head knowledge about God, but it's moved into a heart knowledge. They've been adopted into the family of God. That that was God's doing. And every new Christian, every every Christian for that matter, should be a little bit surprised. The the, the choir did a hymn this morning in the 8 o'clock service, and I I got to write down the lyrics and study these more. They were incredible. Uh, Yet not I, but Christ in me is the name of this hymn they did. And it's, it, the, the, the chorus is something like, what a, what a strange and divine thing. I, I'm not getting the words right, but it's strange. They, they call, I love that. There should always be a sense for every Christian that they think, huh, even me. 
I'm a Christian. Can you believe it? He saved, he saved even me. A Christian should always be a little bit of a surprise even to herself or to himself. Huh, even me. Because think about it. What's the opposite? <laughs> of course me. Ugh. Isn't that gross? Doesn't that smack of self-righteousness? Yeah, God, you're lucky to have a guy like me on your team. I was about to sign with Team Satan, but the last minute, it, what, what, you, were, you were rescued, man. Even me, huh, even me. I'm a child of God. Well, John then turns his attention to fathers. Now, these are older saints. These are men and women who've been walking with Jesus a long time. Look at verse 13. I'm writing to you fathers. I love Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase the message. He paraphrases this as, I'm writing to you veterans. I love that. Veterans, you've been, you've been through some battles. You fought some, you got some battle scars in your spiritual journey. And I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he writes, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. This is not because the father said, huh? <laughs> this is because, this is because that same, uh, the emphasis here, that same word know is the exact same Greek word that's used of the little children. You know God is your father. And here, you know him who is from the beginning. You know what that tells me? If you've been walking with the Lord a long time, you'll know exactly what I'm about to say. When you first got saved, you knew God. And now, you know him. You say, well, you knew him, you knew him. You know him, you know him, same thing. Oh, but the depth, the richness Your knowledge of God has ripened. It didn't stay the same. You didn't just mark time. Older Christians know more about change because they've seen more change. That's just a fact. They have lived through more stuff than younger Christians. That's why they know in a deep and profound way. They know. And as things keep changing, they know him who is from the beginning. More than ever before, an older Christian will tell you, in a world that has completely changed, they'll tell you, I know God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And he says again, in a world that's totally changing, I know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he is truly the one from the beginning. He is eternal. And on a practical note, the older people get, the more they think about eternity. I I mean, we all must face it, but I have a feeling it's a different kind of feeling at 18 when you think you're going to live forever than at 80. But those who have walked with the Lord a long time do not fear eternity. Why? Their hearts are already there. They're fixing their eyes on the one who is eternal from the beginning. So, New Christians enjoy the joy of forgiveness from God, and the seasoned veterans enjoy the sweet fellowship with God. But the Christian life is not just about the forgiveness of God and the fellowship of God, enjoying his forgiveness and enjoying his fellowship. It's also about fighting the enemy. And so John reminds young people, you're still in a fight, and yet you've overcome. Look what he says. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, here he expands on overcome the evil one, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Ah, the forgiveness of past sins must be followed by deliverance from sin's present power. In other words, there's a sense in which John here is saying, I don't want you, he's about to say, I don't want you to love the world. I don't, you know, I, 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 I want you to live in light and not darkness. And yet here he says, yeah, you've already overcome. These are all past tense, right? I mean, your sins are forgiven. You have overcome. How is it that he can say, we're engaged in this fight? You know, it's not just about fellowship. We got to fight. And yet, you've won. Well, now we get into 
Christian doctrine of justification versus sanctification. Justification is the act by which God declares a guilty sinner as righteous because of Jesus Christ. The moment a person is born again, they have eternity in, with God in heaven as their forever home. Satan is defeated, if you will. That's over. That's settled. And yet now begins that long journey of sanctification, which is the lifelong process of being made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, more and more into his likeness, being made more like Jesus. So that justified, then sanctification. That's why he can say, fight, because the battle's already won. Uh, think of it this way. In World War II, the decisive battle, right? Once the Allied forces landed at Normandy, the enemy had effectively lost. Most historians say that was the turning point. That was the decisive victory. But still, soldiers had battles to sort of close out the war, and that was no cakewalk. Yet, there was a sense in which it gave them hope to know the war is as good as won. Because of the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you are safe, Christian. You're secure. Satan cannot touch you. So in that sense, you've already overcome the evil one. Uh, Satan was defeated. Easter Sunday morning, it's over. The decisive battle has been won, but there's still battles we fight to close out. You might think of it this way. Uh, For those of you in Sunday school who are going through the Explore the Bible, a couple weeks ago, or maybe last week, was the story of the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3 in the fiery furnace. It strikes me. I won't spend a long time on this, but it strikes me. um, The war was won. And then they walk through the trial. See, when you read that, you might think the big trial was the fiery furnace. No. The fiery furnace was never what could harm the man or the woman of God. The only danger they faced was whether or not they'd bow to an idol. And once they chose not to bow to an idol, they were safe as could be. Even if they went to a fiery furnace. The only time they were ever in danger was deciding whether or not to bow to an idol. Sin is the only thing that can harm a Christian. Not death, not life. Not things created, not things to come, not angels, not principalities, not height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. That fiery furnace couldn't touch Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were safe as could be. The only time they were in danger was when they were choosing whether or not to bow. And when they chose not to bow to the idols, the war was won. They had overcome the evil one. Well, how are we going to fight this battle? How do we remain strong? The secret, I think, is buried in that middle part of the second Uh, 14b, I write to you, young men, you've overcome the evil one. But look, he adds, because you are strong. Yeah, but how? How do we have strength to overcome? The word of God abides in you. Let me ask you, does the word of God abide in you? Are you facing battles, Christian? Does the word of God abide in you? Does your marriage need help? Does the word of God abide in you richly? Are you stumbling over the same sins? Is the word of God abiding in you richly? Do you wrestle with doubt? Does the word of God abide in you? Does it live in you? Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Uh, uh, my, uh, people who taught me the Bible in college made us all memorize this as college students because it goes like this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Young men, do you want your way to be pure? Does the word of God abide in you? Young women, do you want to be holy and pure? Does does the word of God abide in you? Adults, everybody, Christians. Now, you say, well, does this mean we just read the word of God and that's it? Well, Ephesians 6 sort of helps us with this. It says, in the armor of God, there's one offensive weapon. And he says, it's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
There's a sense in which it's the Holy Spirit and the only, the only, only the Holy Spirit that can enable a Christian to live victoriously and the Holy Spirit somehow uses as his sword the word of God. So you get the word of God in you and it somehow um, the Holy Spirit is able to use that as a sword in fighting these great victories. So there it is. We've got to transition and, and, and spend just the brief time we have remaining on now how to how to deal with the world, but there you have it. That's who you are. I. Howard Marshall says in his commentary that um, uh, Christians need this reminder, and we shouldn't be afraid to say it. I'm a child of God, and I know it. Um, He says, of course, you have to qualify that sometimes because sometimes people will be complacent or they'll be lax, but he says the opposite danger is you make Christianity, you make salvation so precarious that it has to be repossessed every so often. What he's talking about it is if you were the teenager at church camp every summer, you got saved every summer whether you needed it or not. You know? Well, many of us have had that experience. The evangelist would get up there and he'd spend a few minutes convincing you you weren't saved. And then he'd get you saved. And put another notch on the belt, count it, move on. And I'm like, what just happened here, right? Uh, the danger, of course, is twofold. One is if you have somebody who's not really saved, they need to hear this. But there is a danger in telling Christians who are saved to somehow doubt what John is saying you should be assured. There's an old hymn, We're Marching to Zion. He said, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly king, oh, children of the heavenly king, may speak their joys abroad. May speak their joys abroad. And you should. You should speak your joy abroad. You're saved. And you need not doubt that you may know. Okay, so he tells now, that's who you are. And because of who you are, here's an imperative. Because of who you are. This is not given to lost people. Remember, this is to save people. He gives an imperative, a a command. Do this or don't do this. Why is that important? There's only, in this short letter, there's five chapters in 1 John, there's only 10 commands in the whole book. 10 imperatives. Uh, Just if, if you may wonder if that's a lot or a little. To put that in a frame of reference, 1 Peter, which is also five chapters, has, and I forgot to write it down, a bunch more. It's a bunch. So ten, only 10 times. It's a lot of who you are, but very little command. So when he gives a command, we better pay attention. And of all the things he can command, here we go. Verse 15, to Christians, do not love the world or the things in the world. Uh-oh. Okay, right away, we got we to gotta clear some stuff up because this gets very confusing very fast. Do, to Christians, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. You're like, whoa, Like the most famous verse in the world is John 3.16, and it says, God so loved. So like, do we love the world? Do we not love the world? When I was a child, my favorite comic strip was Calvin and Hobbes. And every Christmas, I received a big book called The Authoritative Calvin and Hobbes. And I still have all those books, and they're in our living room. And if you'd like to see them, come over. They're wonderful. They're delightful. And you can spend hours and just laughing, and they're, they're wonderful. If, you, if you're not familiar, it's a little boy with an overactive imagination who's mischievous, Calvin, and he has this tiger uh, that's a, a, a stuffed tiger, and he has anthropomorphized this tiger and given him all these human characteristics and imagine the tiger's real, and they go on all these wonderful adventures. And they have all these hilarious grown-up conversations. One day, they're pretending to be fighter pilots fighting in a war, and the tiger is in the, in the front, in the cockpit, and Calvin is in the back pretending to be the tail gunner. And the tiger shouts out, enemy planes at two o'clock! Enemy planes at two o'clock! Calvin says, got it, two o'clock! What do we do until then? 
The joke is funny because it turns on a understanding of two o'clock in our usual way, but two o'clock can be used in an utterly different way, and suddenly it's, it, it, it totally makes sense. We have that in English. We have the same thing here. In the Bible, the world can mean the created world, including all of the humans. That we should very much love. Why? God loved the world. If you go back and look at Genesis 1, when he created the physical world, what does he keep saying? Good, good, good. He makes humans very good, right? God loves the physical earth that he's created and, 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 and all the, the environs. And he loves, above all, he loves humans. They were made in God's image. So when the Bible talks about world in that sense, love, positive. But the Bible also talks about world as realm, realm, a system, a, a, a set of ideas and, and priorities and people. We, in fact, we use the exact same use of the word. We use that same shade of meaning in modern vernacular. We absolutely do. You've probably said it. You ever met somebody? You're know, like, talking, what's wrong? What's her deal? What's wrong with her? Let me tell you. She lives in her own world. Right? Well, what are you saying? You're not saying she lives on Mars. You're not saying she lives in a separate universe in the space-time continuum. What you're saying is she's operating a whole different realm that nobody else agrees that's reality. We do the same thing. Have you ever been watching the news? And the news anchor says, and now we turn to bring you news from the world of sports. He doesn't mean that sports are being played on another planet in these, you know, extravehicular activity suits as they're floating out in another dimension. Here's football. What he means, of course, is that the world of sports is a world unto itself. It has a set of ideas and people and activities and purposes and celebrities. And it's got all these things. It is a realm. John is saying there is a realm opposed to God. And he calls it the world. It's Satan's invisible system that is opposed to the work of God. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Satan is called the ruler of this world. It means the ruler of this realm. And so it's not a place. It's a mindset. It's not a location. It's an attitude. It's a way of looking at things that says, it doesn't matter. God doesn't exist. Or if he does exist, it makes no difference in the way I live. I'm going to live life with no regard to him. I'm going to live as if I'm my own ruler. And I don't really care what God thinks. I'm living in this realm. And John says, little children, do not love that. Don't love worldliness. Don't love worldliness. Don't love it. Don't fall in love with it. I know, I know. it. Oh, it's so glitzy. That's how worldliness always is, isn't it? It always looks so, it's like glitters like gold. And the minute you get into it, you realize it's rotten. There's nothing to it. Meanwhile, godliness rarely looks attractive. But when you get into it, you realize there's riches untold. He's saying, don't do it. Don't love the world. Why? Well, for one thing, it's mutually exclusive. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a play on words. The love of the Father can mean the love for the Father gets suppressed when we love the world, it can also mean if the love of the Father is in you, it pushes out the love of the world. Mutually exclusive. Do you understand what it means to be mutually exclusive? I'll give you a silly example and a serious one. The silly example. Some of you know I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and have been a lifelong Cincinnati Bengals fan. I still can't believe today is real. (laughs) I love the Bengals. And I am not a fan of the Rams. I will cheer when they fail. Do you understand? My love for the Bengals makes it mutually exclusive 
Like, uh, to love the Bengals means I, I can't, you're never going to come up to me and be like, well, can't we both win? Don't you want both teams to do well? No, I want them to do badly, and I want us to do great. Now, this illustration can be pushed too far because it's just a game. I mean, would I cheer if a Rams player, hello, a human being made in the image of God, got physically injured? Of course not. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Why would, I heard that little giggle. No, that's a, that's a human being. This is just a game. Humans are more important than games. I, uh. But my love puts me in a mutually exclusive situation. Now, here's the serious example. James 4.4 was dealing with fights and bickering in the church. And he says, the problem comes down to, y'all love the world. And he says, you adulterous people. It didn't mean necessarily that people were committing adultery. It means in the Old Testament, when people forgot God, basically they cheated on God with other gods, with worldliness. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. They cannot coexist. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't love worldliness. He goes, goes on to unpack this further. Four, here's why. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Now, just briefly, I, I'll hit this and move on. We have the same problem with flesh as we did with world. We think of flesh as like flesh and bone and muscle. Sometimes the Bible uses it that way. More often, flesh refers to our old sin nature. The Bible calls it our fleshly nature. That was our capacity, and really that was our only capacity. Before we were saved, we had the capacity to sin. Did you have the capacity to please God? No. Does that mean you could never do a good thing? Oh, there's common grace, but you couldn't do it from a heart that pleases God. When you're saved, you're born again, you're given a new nature, a spirit. And now there's a battle. And the flesh doesn't want to go down without a fight. And the way you overcome the flesh, the flesh wants to feed on all that is in the world, right? And our job is to mortify the flesh, kill the flesh, destroy the flesh. But it's got these desires. How do you kill the flesh? You kill it by starvation. You starve it out. You don't give it anything to feed on. And so what is it constantly craving? It needs worldliness. It needs worldliness. Feed the flesh and feed me. It needs worldliness. You starve it out. That's what he means. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life. You starve it. Let me ask you, do you struggle with lust? Starve your mind of any images that excite lustful thoughts. You starve it. Do you struggle with greed? Starve your mind of incessant images that the world is always dangling in front of you. Do you struggle with comparison, envy, malice, slander? starve your mind of hot gossip. Do you struggle with these things? Starve. And here's the thing. Your, your desires of your flesh will cry out with an urge to feed it. How does it cry out? The most common way, desires of the eyes. Desires of the flesh often come through the eyes. Have you ever considered your eyes have an appetite? Have you ever heard the phrase, feast your eyes on this? Isn't that something? Pretty insightful phrase for English to, to, to get this. Now, lust is probably the most obvious example, but it could be greed. It could be food and drink. An over-desire for food can be, food is good, but it can be twisted into gluttony or an eating disorder. Uh, uh, the obvious examples of uh, drink being twisted into drunkenness, we, I think most of us would get that. But material things, not giving away generously, sex and sexuality, a good gift of God, when perverted and taken out of their God-given context, of marriage between a man and a woman, fornication, sex outside marriage. 
You see this throughout scripture. It was through the eyes that the desires were uh, sought to uh, covet. In Joshua 7, the sin of Achan, God's like, there's sin in the camp, and they discover that God had said, don't touch this stuff, it's holy. It was the spoils of war. And Achan confesses, yeah, it's me. I, I went and buried this stuff under my tent. I, it, was a, it was a robe, and I saw this robe, and it was, so, it was designer. And he even says, like, where it's from. Apparently, that was the big label back then. And, uh, and then I saw silver. It was 200 shekels and 50 shekel bar of gold. And here's what he says. I saw it and wanted it. Coveted. Think about David in 2 Samuel when he should have been off to war. He's up on the rooftop and he seethes Bathsheba and covets. He had 40 chances to shut that down. But the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. And here's the worst part. We think that these are, I, I, I don't know. My hunch is in most churches, the first two get all the attention as the real serious sins. But in fact, this is an ascending order. The worst one's the last. What I mean by that is we hear about addictions or drunkenness or an affair or adultery or whatever, and we go, ooh, you know, but, but really it's the pride of life. That's the most insidious of all. In fact, C.S. Lewis says pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. I never thought about that. Teachers will often appeal to a boy's pride to make him behave decently. And a man can overcome cowardice or lust or an ill temper by thinking they're beneath my dignity. He says, that's pride. The devil laughs. He's perfectly content to see you, you know, be chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the while he's setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. He says, because pride is a spiritual cancer. He actually says, he's fine if your hangnail gets cured, if he's allowed in return to give you cancer. See, pride. So John says, don't get caught up in the world system. Don't do it. And lastly, because the world's on its way out. The musicians are gonna come and help us and we're gonna have a time of response. Can you just look at this verse 17 as they're making their way up here? Can you focus on the, the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Satan's world system has an appearance of permanence and I'm here to tell you, from the word of God that is deceptive, don't fall for it. We've all fallen for it too many times. Can you do a thought experiment with me? Can you imagine two rooms? Now, in everything in your mind, make one a room of worldliness and make one a room of godliness. Just do it. And what's in your rooms? I think it's an interesting way to think about that. What's in your rooms? Let's start with godliness. When I open the doors of, in my mind, yours may be different. But in my mind, when I open the doors, I see people, people that I love. And I see nature, I see forests, I see the, the, way, the, the way the waves crash on the ocean, especially in cold February mornings on the beach, you know. Uh, I see you guys, I see, a, I see my church that I love, right? And I see a richness there that I know I'll, ne I'll never get to the bottom of that. There's C.S. Lewis. Okay. <laughs> but over here, it's laughter. There's joy. And over here, what do you see? When I open the doors of worldliness, it's interesting. The first thing I thought of, and I've been thinking about my thinking. I've been asking myself all week, why did I think of that? The first thing I see everywhere is screens. I see screens. Electronics and pixels. And, it, and it's so glitzy. And it glitters, and it's like, wow, it's like sensory overload, you know? Like a, just glitz and glamour. Now, now here's the thing, I, I, 
The problem is I know it's all fake. It's, it's fake. The world is passing away along with its desires. And yet people will fight over this stuff. They'll lose friendships over this stuff. Marriages will break down over this stuff. Husbands, wives, maybe today you need to look at each other and go, hey, look, let's shut the door on worldliness. And I need to tell you, I love you. It's been too long. Or maybe you need to come Wednesday night and go, there's a lot of screens in our life. We need to get a handle on this. We need to figure this out, see? Whatever it is, to shut the door on that. Uh, Why? Because it's passing away along with all its desires. You won't have to fight this battle forever. There will come a day. You will be glorified. It's passing away. That doesn't mean you need to sell the 401k and go up with a shotgun on the hillside and wait the apocalypse. I'm not talking about that stuff. But I do know that there is such an emphasis right now on this world. I just don't hear as much anymore. Like, like uh, what's the Dow going to do? And what's this going to do? And, and what's going to happen in my life and here and everything? You still do remember, every now and then you need to shut the news down, grab your Bible and go, there's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, I can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a welcome place home. There's still a land that is fairer than day. This is on its way out. The light is breaking through. That's why we pray. Lord, let your kingdom come in greater and greater measure. And one day, the king of this kingdom will come. He is our soon coming king. And all this will pass away. See? So hang on. That's who you are. And that's how you relate to the world. And if you will not love the world, you will be able to love the world so much. You get it? If you don't love the world, you can love these people. Oh, you can bless them. You can help them because you're free from needing them. You can love them. Okay. Let's pray. God, grant to believers a special assurance. Uh, just, just, just give them a, a blessed day today that, that they know, they sense that they are yours and that their forgiveness is not based on their own name's account, but on yours. And God, grant if anyone here is not a believer that today would be that day. God, grant to us that we do not love the world. It is difficult, we confess, to find the balance between being underadapted and overadapted. So let us walk circumspectly. Give us wisdom to be in the world, but not of the world, that we might join you in your good work of preaching and teaching and loving the people that more and more might know you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.